Welcome back to the program. It's often pointed out that one of the great values of art is that it gives us a unique window on the world, that it forces us to be present and in the moment and allows us to channel our own feelings and thoughts into the work of another. In many ways, animals, particularly our companion animals, do the same thing. Perhaps it's why so many of us have them, why we spend so much on them, and also why we introduce young children to animals at zoos. For those young minds, it's often their first connection to a world beyond themselves. My guest today, veterinarian Dr. Vint Verga, has said is his mission to give us a greater awareness and sensitivity towards our companion animals and use them to better understand ourselves and to enrich our appreciation of life. Dr. Vint Verga is a distinguished practitioner and leader in veterinary behavioral medicine. He consults nationally to zoos and wildlife parks, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about his work, The Soul of All Living Creatures, What Animals Can Teach Us About Being Human. Dr. Vint Verga, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. Animals, in some ways, I was thinking about this, really are like art, in that they really do force us to be in the moment and to create a different kind of appreciation for the moment, especially given how chaotic life is today. Absolutely. I I find that that's... um they they are the touchstone i think of my day-to-day existence in terms of keeping keeping track and keeping pace with what's really most important in my life you didn't come to this conclusion all at once it happened over time as a result of your own work and your own practice yes it it, it really has been an uh, an evolution throughout my career but but i i started out with a rather um a critical moment early on in my career, four years out of vet school, I was in emergency practice, and on a routine, stormy November evening, uh, a, a black-coated retriever named Pongo was rushed through the waiting room, which was filled with an array of both um, domestic pets and, and some uh, wildlife that had been injured, and rushed back to the back of the treatment room. And um, Pongo was in um, pretty critical condition, and yet there was nothing wrong with his body. Um, at all, what um, despite um, exams, X-rays, lab tests, everything came back totally unremarkable. Yet Pongo was was very close to um, death, um, or, or certainly um, uh, was not going to be in the world much longer. Um, we did all we could to get him stabilized, but over the course of the night, as I checked on him, he, his continued his condition continued to deteriorate. It wasn't until the middle of the night when I was done with the last of the patients and I was able to sit side by side with Pongo, exhausted, not able to offer him anything else but my companionship while I worked on my medical records, that his condition shifted. But in that one hour as we sat by side by side, he transformed from a non-responsive dog in shock to a dog that was wagging his tail, licking my hand, and nuzzling close and closely next to me. There was nothing I did in that hour um, except provide him companionship and comfort and a gentle touch. And that was a transformative moment in my career as a vet and started to shift my focus for the next 20 years then to what is it about our relationship with animals? What can we learn from them in their behaviors and their mannerisms and their lifestyles that we can take to heart about ourselves to learn more about um, how we live as human beings? Is there a danger that we go too far in this sometimes, that we fetishize our pets, that we anthropomorphize them in ways that are not necessarily healthy for us? Oh, I think certainly that's true. Um, and and um, 
we've got to be cautious about that. I think that that's why the scientific community um, tends to be very, very um, reserved about or, or even skeptical uh, about trying to um, uh, what what some people would say be anthropomorphic about animals um, um, experiences. Um, but what I would tell you too is, is as a veterinarian, I'm classically trained as a doctor and a scientist. And working with so many species day to day for so many years, there's, there's only so long that I could go, go and say, okay, I'm a scientist. I've got to say there's a logical explanation for this. There's a logical explanation for that. And, and there's just too many experiences where I feel like we, we tend to err the other way that we say, no, no, animals are different from that, from us in so many ways because we are somehow, um, more highly evolved as human beings. But they operate in, in an evolutionary way on a very different plane sometimes. As you talked about with Pongo, there is an intuitive sense that is much more finely calibrated as far as animals go. I think you, you, you are spot on with that. Um, and I think we have those senses, and, uh, I, and honestly, I think they're... <sighs> We, we tend to dismiss them. They, at times, I think they're a little more vestigial in human beings in that because we don't tend to rely on them as much we, we, and, and, and tend to either suppress or ignore them, I, I think as human beings, we often forget about all the information that we're, we're um, presented in the world. And a lot of times, I think it comes across to us as intuitive hits. And, and yet those intuitive hits, in essence, I think are really truly based on our senses in many ways. Things other than what we typically think about as words and logical communication. And we're picking up on all those signals, but we, then, we don't tend to attend to them like animals do. Animals, as part of their daily existence, will rely upon their senses, their intuition, their awareness of the world much more so than we tend to do as human beings. And they don't have as many, in some respects, as many distractions. They're not texting or tweeting or, <laughs> or, or taking phone calls during dinner. Exactly, exactly. And I write about that in the book, right. that, that um, I'm as, I, I'm as um, guilty as, the, as any human being uh, of, of giving in to the distractions. Um, and a lot of those distractions are internal. Um, it's our to-do list of of what we want to accomplish in the day, what we're going to do next week, um, what um, the meeting that we have with our um, uh, employer or, or, or manager in the coming um, days, um, the, the regrets about what we said to a friend or a loved one yesterday or the night before, um, even sometimes pains and injuries and wounds from, from when we were much younger, when we were just children, um, that have left emotional impressions upon us. And, and as humans, we tend to pride ourselves so much in our highly evolved brains, but I think our highly evolved brains also tend to be um, very distracting to us. Um, we carry a lot of baggage with us that animals just don't carry with them. Is what we're talking about relevant primarily to our relationship with companion animals, or is this true in different degrees and in different ways across the whole animal spectrum? Um, Jeff, I really truly feel that it is in, it, it it applies across the entire animal spectrum. Um, it's true that about two out of every three American households have a, have some form of an animal living in their home 
the majority, um, for the majority of families, it's either a dog or cat. But even among horse owners, there are many more horses that actually live within steps of a, the front doors of our homes than live in stables. Um, and then there's a, a variety of other pets in our homes. But, but it's, it's astounding if we look at the millions of people that flock to zoos, wild animal parks, um, hike in, in, in national parks or forests, looking for wildlife each year for some sort of sense of contact with other beings other than humans. Um, so I really feel that it is, it is innately within the, our human psyche that we seek out animals of all different types. And why do you think we do that? Well, um, I, I think that is the essence of uh, what I've written about in my book. We do that because in them we see a reflection of ourselves, and that, and that is based on our commonalities as animals. We are just another animal. No matter how highly we are, we are evolved. We are just another animal species in, in, on this planet. And looking at the other animals in our lives, whether it's a, a gorilla that we chance upon at the zoo, a bear as we're hiking um, through the forest, or our own family dog or cat at home, when we see a reflection of ourselves, we also sense the identity of those individuals. And, and bottom line, I feel that we sense that they too, as other beings, have a soul as we do as human beings. How do you respond to those that argue with you about that, that look upon those animals, companion animals and the animals in the zoo, as somehow inferior in so many ways? And there are people that make that argument. Oh, there's certainly, and that's a very, it's, first of all, it's a, it, it's a, it's a prevalent argument, um, mm-hmm. and it's nothing new. It's, it's an argument that's been used through the ages, not only in the scientific community, but in the general, um, general public for, for um, centuries. Um, but there have been scholars, um, popes, um, uh, philosophers, uh, historians, um, that have, through the years, identified that, uh, as I do, that animals, in fact, do have souls as, as human beings do. The, the, um, we, we can look at it from a scientific perspective in, in the sense that uh, many of the animals that I deal with, um, both um, working with family pets or at the zoo, um, have, um, uh, I, I certainly meet animals from time to time that have emotional um, issues, emotional disturbances. And many of those um, emotional issues, if we look at the actual behavioral patterns, there's the the obvious, um, one of the obvious criterion, I can say, is that the animal is very self-aware of themselves. If we have, if we can say an animal is self-aware, then we can also say they are, if they are aware of themselves, they also must, by definition, have a soul. Um, I think probably to the general, um, person at a, at a cocktail party, if I get into a conversation about it, what I would say is, well, even if we look at the word soul, um, it's actually derived from the Latin animus, which means um, a, a being within ourselves, the living animate force. And that is the word from which animal has been derived from. So even if we look at the derivation of the word, animals, uh, the word animal actually came from the living vital force within a being. 
And, and we, like other animals, have that living force within us. Talk a little bit about it with respect to dogs in particular and so many misconceptions about the animals and, and how they impact the way we think about them and the way we interact with them. Well, there are, there are, I think that is, that goes back to your other question, Jeff, about uh, being anthropomorphic and being overly anthropomorphic. Because we live with our dogs, um, as an example, so, so um, intimately, it's very easy to take our, um, all of our emotional baggage as human beings and project it onto them. And that's where I think anthropomorphism becomes hazardous. If we look at dogs, for example, there is no, some of the misconceptions that are, that are prevalent throughout the world are that um, uh, alpha dogs rule. Well, the, the science behind alpha dogs or alpha wolves has been debunked years ago. There's actually no truth to the, to the, to the story that there is an alpha that dominates in a, in a pack or group of dogs, if dogs did form a, a pack. Instead, what there are are leaders, and, and as with wolves, the leaders tend to be a lead male and female, very much like, guess what, human families. Um, other misconceptions about dogs. Um, if we come home and our find, if you came home and you found your dog had torn up the sofa, there's sh- shredded fabric and stuffing everywhere, and your dog comes up to you with this look on his face, a downcast expression, tail tucked between his legs, and he's looking to you with that expression that you identify instantly as mm-hmm. guilt. What I would say is, I would, I would argue that probably is not your dog feeling guilty. Instead, what your dog is in truth saying is, I get that you're upset, and I'm actually giving you every signal that I understand you're upset, and what can we do to get past this? So if you want to look at it in terms of scientific words, what I'd say is our dog showing appeasing signals. But more, more, more specifically, he's not saying he's guilty. What he's saying is, I don't. I, I realize something's upset you. What do we need to do to fix our relationship? And he's doing it with everything he knows how to do and all his body signals and facial expression. It's a form of asking for forgiveness. It absolutely is, and I think that that is um, that is a, a key focus within the book. It's actually a chapter within the book that that I feel as a whole animals are honestly more forgiving than people are. Um, if we look at forgiveness with a, a, a very simple definition of giving as before, before whatever it was that injured one of us. Talk a little bit about whether individuals, specific individuals, have you seen are drawn to specific breeds of dogs, specific kinds of dogs, or cats for that matter? Well, I think that there's a science to that in and of <laughs> itself. And um, I think that, quite honestly, there's there's experts out there that uh, in the veterinary um, and, and um, uh, anthrop- anthropological world that probably know even more about that than I do. But what I would tell you is that um, uh, I think we pick we are attracted to dogs for a number of different reasons. Sometimes it's appearance. Sometimes it's more functional. We're looking for a dog for specific sporting or herding purposes or, or some other type of working purpose. But I think a lot of times what we're looking for is a certain personality of dog that somehow we resonate with. And that goes right back again to the essence of, of what so much of my focus is, is what is it about the individual that 
that attracts us to them. Why, if we're standing um, uh, with uh, in front of a litter of puppies, why is it that one or two particular puppies stand out to us as being they are the ones that, that somehow touch our hearts? And I think it's because of the identity. It's because of the individual character of that individual. In essence, it's the soul of that individual animal that ultimately draws us to them or them to us. I mean, in that sense, we fall in love with animals the way we do with people. Absolutely. And and we can sit there and try to be logical about it and say, well, I like this person because of their career. I like this person because of their interests. But there's a chemistry, ultimately, that's behind every friendship, every intimate relationship, every every um, um, connection that we tend to share with another human being or another animal. And that's where we, as uh, internally, our, our character, our personality, our soul, somehow resonates or somehow feels more comfortable and somehow identifies with that other person, that other, other animal. What have you seen in terms of the evolution of that human-animal bond, that, that perhaps it starts on one level and goes deeper, goes to another level? What have you seen in terms of that evolution? Oh, well, um, I think that what I've personally seen has been... Um, is, um, is that as we spend time with an animal, we start to um, open more and more of ourselves and who we are as an individual um, up to that animal. And animals as a whole, I feel, very much respond to that. And that's more than just our dogs and cats. Much, most of my work nowadays is with um, keepers at zoos and wild animal parks and the animals with whom they work. And the relationship with the keepers and the animals in the zoos is just as deep and profound, as intimate, believe it or not, as you and I would have with our family, dog or cat at home. Um, what I do um, find is that as we open ourselves up to animals and animals respond to us, the, the we some pretty interesting things happen in the statistics in this country are, are um, based on the um, various ownership surveys of animals out there um, are pretty pretty um, uh, telling about that. We actually, as a whole, if we look at um, the American public, feel more comfortable sharing our secrets, our private inner fears and worries, many times more with a family pet than we do even with a family than with a family member or a close confidant or friend. If, if we were left alone on a desert island to spend the rest of our days with only one person or one individual, um, more uh, Americans would actually choose to spend their uh, life with an animal than with another human being. And it's because of that depth of willingness to share ourselves with animals and the response that they in turn share with us that ultimately is responsible, I think, for um, the connection that um, those statistics strongly um, demonstrate. We talked a little bit earlier and in various contexts about how animals, how we relate to them, how they relate to us, our companion animals, what, and being in the moment. What is their perception of time? Well, 
I think it um, varies from uh, animal to animal and certainly from species to species. But I have no doubt at all from um, working with the wide array of species that I work with that animals have a very strong sense of time. In fact, they don't need alarm clocks to wake up in the morning. They use the, the rhythms of, the, of life in the world in order to um, go about their daily existence. Um, when we as humans change our times twice a day from, I mean, twice a year from daylight savings time and, and back to standard time, um, the animals around us do not make those changes. We do as human beings. Um, I, I think that um, an interesting tale around that is back when I was in veterinary school, at the time at least, back at the University of California in, in vet school, um, a number of the vet students um, would bring their dogs to, to class for the first few years of, of classes in, in veterinary school. And whenever we'd have an, an odd lecture that wasn't an hour long, instead it was a double lecture, an hour and a half lecture, it was always amusing to me to watch the dogs in the classroom. At about 50 minutes when we would normally be expected to move on until the next class, the dogs would start getting restless of several minutes beforehand. And they'd be wondering, why are we not getting ready? What is going on? Are we... Uh, I, I always found it just um, remarkable that even in a short t sense of time of just an hour, um, not, we're not talking about normal diurnal rhythms, that, that the dogs all seem to have a better sense of the classroom time than we even did as human beings. What about animals that are ill-behaved? And, and where does that come from? You know, we always hear the expression, there are no bad dogs, just bad owners. What, <laughs> what is that all about? Well, in, in, in many cases, it, it's about miscommunication um, between a human and the animal that they're trying to communicate with. And, and it's, too, it's a two-sided miscommunication. Um, we are often sending signals that our dogs are picking up on that we're, we're not being attended to. But the other part of it is, is we're it, totally misinterpreting what our dogs are telling us such as in the example I gave you earlier about the dog um, that had torn up the sofa when we came home. Um, so I, I honestly think that a lot of times, the majority of times, it's about misinterpreting signals between species. And that's part of um, a veterinary behaviorist role is to help decode um, uh, the, the, the languages between humans and, and animals so that we can better um, uh, relate to each other. But there are, just as there are with human beings, there are dogs, there are horses, there are iguanas and leopards with, with true serious behavioral disorders. Um, interestingly enough, I do feel that um, working with the animals that I do work with, uh, um, both domestic and non-domestic, that m the animals with behavioral disorders are animals that live in association with people much more than in the wild. Hmm. And I often, although um, nobody has, because nobody out there has documented um, dis disorders such as um, self-injurious self behaviors, um, psychotic disorders, compulsive disorders, in wild species that are actually out in their normal habitat, um, I, I have to question whether perhaps the behavioral disorders that I do see are somehow partially contributed to by um, uh, an artifact of having living, um, an artifact of living under environments controlled by human beings. One of the great positive outcomes that we've seen from all of these things that we're talking about 
is the way in which animals are being used more and more in therapy. Talk about that. Well, I, dogs um, and, and cats particularly, um, I, because we are more familiar with them than, than most other species, um, make wonderful um, uh, companion animals for human beings, particularly for people that have um, um, issues, um, either physical or emotional, that they're um, trying to work out. Because of the intimacy that I talked about earlier, where um, it, it, it's, it's well documented that, that human beings share themselves many times more intimately with animals than they do um, with, with fellow human beings. Um, animals make great candidates for helping a person to get over an issue, whether it's a, a, a physical handicap or whether it's a, a, an emotional um, um, issue that they're, they're struggling with. So as a result, we can see animals being used as therapy animals from everywhere from hospitals and nursing homes to assistance animals for um, people that are um, confined to wheelchairs or um, are visually handicapped um, to um, working in prisons with, with people that have, for whatever reasons, ended up in the penal system. There are a lot more pe- prisoners, for example, are a lot more wel- uh, welcoming um, and often embrace and uh, the opportunity to interact with an animal compared to um, the humans that they would typically interact with um, while they're in um, an institutional setting. Talk a little bit about zoos, where you do a lot of the work that you do, as you mentioned earlier, and, and, and the increasing criticism of zoos that we hear today. Well, uh, I, I think that the, the criticism uh, about zoos uh, is certainly... Um, 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 a valid concern. Um, but what I would tell you is that 20, 30 years ago, um, even as, as early as maybe 15, 18 years ago, looking at my life, I used to shy away from zoos. I found that um, too many times I would end up in front of an animal and in their habitat where it just felt like it was not appropriate for that that animal. The setting, the the, the 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 animal's behavior didn't seem right to me, and, and I decided after um, enough uh, years of, of of avoiding zoos that really the only way to go about trying to um, work on that issue when I would struggle with it was to actually work within um, zoos rather than than standing outside of them and, and judging them. Um, but zoos have evolved tremendously in the past 30 years, really at the dawning of the Aquarian Age. Um, and since the 70s, 80s, zoos have become now the primary um, uh, means by which most people would interact with, with um, exotic species. And instead of being um, what used to be um, before then, primarily um, institutions that were there for entertainment, now their primary missions are education and conservation. There are most of the animals that I work with on a daily basis belong to endangered species. And those species would not be around today if it weren't for the incredible work that is being done by zoos around the world. Um, the other thing I would say about zoos is behind the scenes, um, 
the keepers um, that work with zoos, the curators, the zoo vets that I work with on a day-to-day basis. I've never met a group of people um, that are more committed and more devoted to their animals. Their day-to-day job is to is to work on trying to make the lives of those animals as good as possible. And there are so many keepers that I work with, so many curators that I work with that I feel are as committed, if not even more committed, than than most people are toward their family pet at home. Dr. Vint Verga, the book is The Soul of All Living Creatures, What Animals Can Teach Us About Being Human. It's just out from Crown. Vint, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, well, thank you so much again for inviting me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 